Welcome to Desert City Church's podcast. Thanks for listening in. What you are about to hear is a sermon given live at one of our Sunday gatherings. We are a new church serving neighborhoods on the edge of North Phoenix and Scottsdale, Arizona. Our sermons are ongoing conversations around a sacred text or scripture in which we find the story of Jesus. We hope they inspire you to love God and others more. If we can serve you in any way or answer any questions about our community, please don't hesitate to ask. You can find out more information at DesertCityChurch.com. So back in the 7th century before the time of Christ, the people of God uh, found themselves in a, uh, a difficult circumstance, very difficult situation. Uh, the, uh, their kingdom had been divided by civil war, and there was this kind of constant threat of the Assyrians to their north. It was a time of uh, kind of spiritual numbness within, within their country, and it was a time of great fear uh, of, of outside uh, oppression. And in the midst of the circumstance, a, a, a prophet, a man named Isaiah, comes onto the scene with a message. And his message is very prophetic and poetic. Uh, his message uh, is, is very harsh and yet hopeful. And as he starts to talk about what God is doing in the world, he starts to anticipate that God is going to intervene for his people. And he starts to use this language of talking about God actually coming down in the form of a human. And it's this prophetic word. And, and as we read kind of through the, the, the book of Isaiah now, and we, we listen to what he's talking about, he's, we, we believe that he's describing the life of Jesus. In fact, it, it's so clear as he describes this, this holy anticipation that God's going to intervene and, and that Jesus was going to come that a lot of scholars now call Isaiah the fifth gospel. They say he, he writes as one, uh, he writes as one it's, it, that isn't predicting the future. It's almost like he's writing as giving an account of something that's already happened. That's the clarity that Isaiah writes with. And these, uh, these holy anticipation that, that God was going to intervene as he starts uh, to write and we, we uh, we assume he's, he's writing of, of Jesus. Uh, the words now have kind of become very tradition, tradition to read around the time of Christ. And so as we are in the Advent season and we're preparing our hearts for Christmas, we've been kind of looking at this passage in Isaiah, starting at the end of chapter 8 and into verse 9, and kind of focusing on those words as we prepare our hearts for Christmas. And I wanted to start off again. We've, we've read this passage uh, the last two weeks, and I think it's good to continue to read it and to continue to, to look at it. But starting in Isaiah chapter 8, 21, it says, and as he's describing a situation, it says, Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. And then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness." Great way to start a Christmas story, right? It was, wow. Nevertheless, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. And the people walking in the darkness have seen a great light. On those in the land of the living, uh, living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. 
These titles given to uh, this, this holy anticipation that God was going to intervene in this world. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. The last three weeks, last two weeks, we've been talking about these titles, and we talked about uh, God as a wonderful counselor, and we see this, this image of, of, of God and Jesus. We believe that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and we looked at the story of uh, the woman at the well in John chapter 4 and how Jesus meets with this lady, and he tells her everything about herself, and there's this moment of transformation and peace and hope. There's this wonderful counselor that meets with us. And last week we talked about the mighty God, how God is, is uh, omnipotent. He created the heavens and the earth, and yet he comes and meets with us. He comes to earth in the form of a baby, this infinite power packed into an infant. And we talked about how uh, this, this love of God is manifested, um, and not through, through, through oppression and overpowering us and making us do things. This love of God is, is manifested through him sacrificially loving us and how love is the most powerful force on earth. And, and God in all his power doesn't, uh, doesn't make us do anything, doesn't oppress us, but there's this woo factor where we are drawn into relationship with him, caught up in this invitational love. Today I want to talk about this idea of the everlasting father. The everlasting father. Father, when you hear that phrase, there's uh, obviously you, you think everlasting, eternal, uh, has no beginning, has no end. And then Father, um, that might be trickier when talking about God. Uh, throughout Scripture, uh, God is thought of as a heavenly Father. We have a song that we sing about it now. You're a good, good Father. It's who you are. It's who you are. I'm loved by you. It's who I am. You know, we, we talk about God as Father, and for some people that's a good thing. For other people... Um, that could be something that's challenging because of their own upbringing. But we see this image of this good father throughout Scripture. And it's, it, there, there's passages of that good father in the Old Testament, but uh, really in the New Testament is when they start to pick up on the language of God as father. And so most of, much of that, comes, uh, that language comes out of the Gospel of John. There's all these passages where Jesus is talking about God as his heavenly father. Over 40 times he talks, as, uh, talks of, of God as Heavenly Father, and then at one point he says, the Father and I are one. And we start to understand the life of Jesus, and we start to understand that he is the image of the invisible God. What we find is that Christ is this everlasting Father, this Father in, in our life, that we come to the, this, this person who initiates life for us, who provides for us, who protects us, who looks out for us. One of the images in the Old Testament of God as Father is found in the Psalms. And I, I love, uh, I love what, what T.S. Eliot uh, says about poetry. He says that it has, a, it has a way of communicating even before it's understood. And as we look at the Psalms, the Psalms of David, the same thing kind of happens. David's communicating something about God even before he completely grasps what God is like. And I want to turn to Psalm 103 when it comes to this image of God as Father. We read uh, in our Advent reading today, Psalm 103, this, this very famous, uh, famous psalm, Bless the Lord, O my soul. But starting in verse 13, uh, it, says, it says this, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. As a father has compassion on his children, 
So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And his place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. And his righteousness with their children's children. Great images of of who God is. Uh, if we look at this psalm and we, we consider that it's talking of God as Father, the first thing that kind of pops out is that uh, the Father's character is compassionate. The Father's character is compassionate. It says uh, that God's compassion is a Father's compassion to his children. So is the Lord compassionate to those who fear him. I love this idea of compassion. Uh, compassion is one of my kind of favorite themes throughout Scripture. Um, compassion is... Uh, I would, I would argue, a defining characteristic of, of God and his people. Uh, in the New Testament, compassion is a big deal. We find uh, there, there's this, this term that uh, d- describes not just compassion as an emotion, but there's this deep-rooted feeling of compassion. For the Greeks, they had this, this word that I, I love to say. It's called um, splunknizomai, splunknizomai, which means to be compassionate. It really comes with this word splunknon, and splunknon is where we get the word spleen. It means like something inside of you, your intestines, something inner uh, aches. Actually, the, the literal translation is like your bowels ache, which is like gross, right? Uh, but it would be the same kind of images that we use as like when your heart aches for something. And for the Greeks, when they would talk about things that would, would, uh, would break their heart, they would talk about the splunknizomai. They would have compassion. Um, what we find is that that Jesus has this experience over and over again uh, throughout the Gospels. Um, it's, it's this emotion that leads to action. If we just, just to look at the Gospel of Matthew, you'll find, you'll find Jesus having compassion. If we start in Matthew uh, chapter 9. This isn't on the screen, but um, if you want to follow, I'll kind of fly through this. Um, but in Matthew uh, chapter 9, Verse 35, it says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He felt just this deep ache for the people. He felt compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He says that he goes through healing uh, those who had diseases and sickness. And then in Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 14, picking up in verse 13, it says, uh, When Jesus heard what had happened, uh, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place, as he had often do. And hearing of this, the crowds followed him um, on foot from the towns. And when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he heals they're sick. The same idea. Jesus has this deep ache for the people. The story, he goes on to, to see people are hungry and he feeds 5,000. It comes from this compassion, this deep ache that he feels. Then in Matthew chapter 15, verses uh, 29 through 32, it says, Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up to a mountainside and sat down. He's always like trying to get away from the crowds, it seems like, um, trying to retreat to a solitary place. But it says, great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they laid them at his feet, 
and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking and the crippled made well, and the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they praised God, the God of Israel. And Jesus called the disciples and said, I have compassion for these people. Compassion for these people. And then in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells this famous parable of the unmerciful servant. Some of you know that story, how it goes. There's this uh, master who has a servant that owes him a great debt, and he has compassion on it, and he forgives the debt. And the man who's been forgiven goes out and finds someone that owes him a debt, and he's unwilling to have the same kind of compassion that he's received, and all sorts of bad stuff happens, right? Compassion is this defining characteristic for Christians. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 34, there's these two blind men that Jesus sees, and he sees that they do not have sight, and he has compassion on them, and he brings them sight. Over and over again, the splunknizomai, this everlasting father who has compassion for his people. It's his theme throughout the Gospels. The early church, as they started to understand that this is a defining characteristic of God, understood that as a church, they also had to be compassionate. They had to have these deep inner achings for the brokenness of the world around them. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, uh, it's such a big deal. They, they're saying this compassion is such a defining characteristic of what it means to follow Jesus. They say, if, if, you, if you see your brothers and sisters in need, and they have a physical need, and they are going without, and you don't have compassion on them, how can the love of God be in you? Compassion is this defining characteristic of following Jesus. Our Heavenly Father, as, as, as a father has compassion for his children, so does the Lord for those who fear him. God has compassion on us. We see this image throughout scripture. Uh, I think of my compassion for my children. Um, I, I, was, uh, I was reading this uh, uh, book by Timothy Keller, and he was talking about uh, the, only, the only person that's willing to wake up a king in the medieval time, in the middle of the night, is like a three-year-old son of the king, right? The king, you don't disturb the king when he's sleeping. And Keller was saying, we kind of have the same access to God as our Heavenly Father and as our King, you know, we can go to Him. And I was, I was kind of thinking of what that meant. And, you know, last night, um, uh, I was w- awoken in the middle of the night. And some of you noticed my wife Marcy is not here right now. Uh, we didn't sleep last night, which happens a couple times a week. Uh, some of you know what that's like. Um, in the middle of the night last night, our son Ezra woke up. He had an earache. And at first, like, he was crying, and I heard him, and I had compassion on him. And, uh, you know, try to help him, give him some, uh, some medicine to help him go to sleep and feel better. But, you know. Um, then he got up again, and he got up again. And it was like every 30 minutes throughout the night. And finally, by like 3 in the morning, I had like no more compassion for the kid. <laughs> it was like, I am done. Close the door. Get this kid out of here. And, and I was just thinking of that, and I was thinking of the Keller quote, and I was thinking of how a father has compassion on his children, so does God have compassion on us? And I thought about that, and it's like, yeah, I have compassion on my children, but I am still so limited as a human, right? There's only so much you can take at three in the morning. But here we have this perfect heavenly father who has compassion. And if we have compassion as humans, how much more does this God, this heavenly father, have compassion on us? If the father has compassion on his children, so does the Lord for those who fear him. The second thing that this psalm teaches us about the character of the father is that uh, the father's, father's knowledge is intimate. The father's knowledge is intimate. 
And this is the thing that we've kind of been hitting on as well. This is the fact that this, this God is, is all-knowing. He's omniscient. He knows everything about us. And he still chooses to love us. When you look at this, this story of the woman at the well, uh, and Jesus meets with her, and, he, he, and this woman has like this questionable character. It says that Jesus tells her everything about herself. And she goes and she tells the town, and she goes, you have to meet this Jesus. He told me everything about myself. Isn't that great? And it's like, he, he knows everything about her, and he meets her in her, the moment of uh, her circumstance. And he's approachable. And in the midst of knowing all of the stuff about her life, he's willing to meet with her and to draw her into a new life. God knows everything about us. This, this, father, uh, this father knows us. It says uh, he knows how we were formed. He remembers that we are dust. Now, this isn't something that is like kind of tearing us down. All right, we're just humans that are made from the dust. This is a reminder that in the creation story, human humanity is made in the image of God made out of the clay, out of the ground, made in the image of God to be image bearers of God here on earth. And this God who has created us knows everything about us. He knit us together. Um, he, knows, he knows our fears. He knows our insecurities. He knows the things that we're ashamed of, that we hide. He knows also our potential and what we're capable of. The Lord knows everything about us. His Father knows us as much as we know um, our children, even more so. In the Old Testament, there's, in the Genesis story, uh, there's this woman named Hagar, and uh, she has a, a really interesting story, super kind of controversial story. Um, she kind of gets uh, cast, uh, cast aside, this woman. And as she gets cast aside, she's really treated poorly by, by uh, people who uh, who are God's people, and, and what comes from Hagar is super controversial, but it's really interesting because Hagar has this encounter with God when she's lost everything and she's desperate. She's trying to figure out what to do. She has this encounter with God, and she's the first person in Scripture that attributes a name to God. She says, God is the one who sees me. He sees me in my plight. Uh, the first person to attribute a name to God is this, this uh, controversial woman in Scripture. And she says, God is the God who sees. He's the God who knows. And how true of our situation as well. God knows us. He sees us. So we consider this Father who knows everything about us and who sees us. It means no matter what we are going through, we're not alone. No matter how difficult it is, no matter how much we feel like we've been overlooked or misunderstood, there's this God who says, I see you. I know you know exactly what you're going through. We have to be reminded of this eternal perspective that there's this God that knows us, knows exactly what we're going through. Then the psalm goes on to say these wonderful words, from everlasting to everlasting. This everlasting Father. The Father's love is everlasting. It's eternal. There's this steadfast love of the Lord that is in our life. His love for us is everlasting. In John chapter 1, as the Gospel of John starts off, there's this creative poem that kind of retells the creation story. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. We start to understand the Word is Jesus, and he's been with God from the beginning. He's everlasting. 
And it talks about how we become children of God, how he is our father. And it talks about the idea of the incarnation, that God comes to earth in the form of Jesus. I love Eugene Peterson's words on this passage. He says, the word uh, became flesh and it moved into the neighborhood. There's this eternal God, this eternal love that is incarnate here on Christmas to show us what God is like. And this God's love is eternal. Probably one more famous passages in all scriptures, the story of the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son takes place in Luke chapter 15. And it's famous, obviously, um, if you've watched VeggieTales, if you grew up in the church. I'm sure at some point you've encountered this story. But I wanted to read through the words, and I wanted you to just consider this everlasting love that is found in this, this father. Let's start in Luke chapter 15. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. And then he goes on to tell some parables about this. Verse 11, Jesus continued, and he says this, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So here's some interesting detail. He tells a story about a man. The man has two sons. And one of the sons asked the father for his inheritance, which is a pretty bold ask. This is a big ask. Because basically what he's saying, that if you know this time period, very similar today, the inheritance is passed down when the father dies. And so as the son comes to the father, he says, would you please give me my inheritance now? He's basically saying, like, I care more about what you're going to leave me than your very life. Can you imagine how heartbreaking that would be for the father to have a son that says, I almost wish you were dead. I just want your money. And this is what's happening in the story. And the father obliges this. It's not long after that, the son got together all he had. And he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. He squandered that inheritance. So he wishes that his father is dead. He takes everything that his father has worked for. And he leaves and he takes it and he squanders it. So, I mean, we're, we're all thinking, like, what a punk, right? This is like, what a, just, it's not a good person, right? After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country uh, who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods of the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. So this guy who squanders his father's wealth, famine hits the land, everyone's losing everything, everyone's starving, he has no idea what to do. So he hires himself out and he's working with pigs, and it says it gets so bad for this guy that he's actually like desiring to eat the food that the pigs eat. He's completely in this dark pit. Verse 17 says, when he came to his senses, I can't imagine like what that, like, duh, come to your senses, like what are you doing? He says, he came to his senses, and he says, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer to, worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And so he got up and he went to his father. I think this kind of gets overlooked in the story. Can you imagine what this would be like for the son 
who has this conversation that's probably uh, super confrontational with his dad, and he breaks his dad's heart. He takes his dad's wealth, his inheritance, and he leaves and he squanders it. And now he gets to a moment where he's going to go back to his dad and ask forgiveness. You can imagine the depth of humility that would take for the son to do that, to go back and have this conversation. He has no idea how his dad's going to react, if his dad's going to say, I told you so. He does it out of risk. But then it says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with, here's the word, compassion for him. And he ran to his son, and he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And the son said to the father, said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring out the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast to celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is now found. And they began to celebrate. This unbelievable scene of reconciliation. Where the father has every reason to be mad at the son. Every reason to say, I told you so. Every reason to reject him. The father, when he sees him and he's a long way off, he comes pursuing the son. And he embraces him. And he celebrates him. Now there's more to this story. There's another character in the story that I don't want to get into today, which really the story is really fascinating when you see what happens with the older brother. But the father says, my son, uh, says to the older brother, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. There's this heart of the father that wants to revive the son that was dead to him. The heart of the father out of his compassion that wants the son to be found longs for the son uh, to re-enter into the family. An amazing story, the prodigal son. Tim Keller wrote an entire book on this story. It's fascinating. And he talks about this idea of the prodigal, this prodigal son. He says that prodigal means to spend something recklessly, to spend something extravagantly. And we call this the prodigal son because the prodigal son spends the inheritance extravagantly. Recklessly. But Keller says, this story isn't about the son. The son's in it. But this is a story about the father. This is a story about God. And he says, this story rightfully should be called the prodigal God. Because this is a God who spends his compassion and his grace and his love recklessly and extravagantly. This is a father, an everlasting father who spends his love on us. And it feels reckless. He welcomes the son back in. Keller says, this is the kind of God that we have. One who would spend so much on us. And this is the story of Christmas. This God, this heavenly father that loves us so much, comes to earth as a baby, gives up uh, the comfort of heaven, And comes down. Philippians 2 talks about this character of Jesus. Doesn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but makes himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, becoming a human. 
this humility, this power that's poured out through sacrificial love is the story of Christmas. This is the story of the prodigal God who spins lavishly on us. So the Father's the Father's character is compassionate. The Father's knowledge is intimate and the Father's love is everlasting. And this is the God that we serve. I don't know if you've ever encountered this God, if you've had all sorts of mixed messages about what God is like. But we see this God who is compassionate, who is loving, who pursues us in our brokenness, who sacrifices for us. One of my favorite theologians is a guy named A.W. Tozer. It's a great name, Tozer. But he says this quote that we return to often. It says this, Anything that God has ever done, he can do now. Anything that God has ever done anywhere else, he can do here. And anything that God has done for anyone else, he can do for you. The message of Christmas is of this eternal, everlasting Father that has come to earth to show us what God is like, to meet us in our brokenness, to meet us in uh, the ways that we mess up, the things that we are ashamed of, to counsel us through it, and to invite us back into the family, into this life that is everlasting. This is the story of Christmas. This is the everlasting Father, the Father of compassion. As the band comes up, I wanted to close with this prayer. And it's a prayer that some of you know, and if you know, you can recite it with me. But I thought as we, as we would end, if you would stand and receive this prayer. It's the Lord's Prayer. And before we, we read it, um, I want this to prepare our hearts uh, for a time of communion today. As we consider who this God is in our life, our invitation, much like the, the sun that has run away, is to return and to receive. And today our hope is that you would return and receive what God has for you, this life that is eternal and everlasting. And as we move towards communion, we do this in remembrance of who God is. And the, commu the communion for us is a reminder of the incarnation, that God came to earth in the form of a baby, and he sacrificed his body, eventually sacrificing on the cross. It's represented in the bread that you'll take. The juice represents this blood that was poured out, this blood that represents his life that flowed through his body and was shed on the cross. And this good father did this for us. Matthew 6, chapter, nine, uh, chapter 6, verse 9. You can read this with me if you want. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, we thank you so much for being our Father. Lord, we thank you for giving us life, for providing for us, for protecting us. Lord, we thank you for these Psalms of David that we get to see these different characteristics of you that convey things that uh, 
we may not even understand yet. As we try to grasp the greatness of your love, Lord, we see that you are compassionate, that you are all-knowing, that your love is everlasting. Lord, today as we prepare our hearts for Christmas, we, we want to have this encounter with you. Meet us now. Meet us in our brokenness. Draw us into a life of wholeness. Meet us in our death and bring about life eternal. Meet us in our wandering, Lord, and help us to be found. We give you this time. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Feel free to move to communion.